Welcome to episode 21 of Redboard Rewind. Today, my guest is Peter Thomas Fornatel. We talk about how pace can be the most important factor, when to look for a stranger in maiden claiming races, and a future star in the making. This is Redboard Rewind. And now I'd like to welcome in my special guest, Pierre Thomas Fornatel. Pete, how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm honored to be the first, uh, I think I'm a three-time, maybe a four-time Redboard Rewind guest now. And I'm so excited that we're doing this show in person. We're not dealing with the distance of the Skype call. And you're here in the world-famous Brooklyn Bunker. So, I mean, first of all, does it live up to your expectations? It's the ninth wonder of the world, folks. <laughs> Let me tell you right now. Um... It's definitely nifty being here. Took the train up this morning, crack of dawn, but definitely worth it to have a day here with Pete, for sure. Excellent. Well, I'm looking forward to chatting with you about these races, and where do you want to begin? Well, I know that from the Naira Betts podcast, you guys were playing the Pick 5 on Saturday, so it was the late Pick 5. Why don't you give me your, kind of your thoughts going into it? Sure. Well, as I expressed on the show, kind of a, a funny concept that I think folks should be aware of that this pick five illustrates is your ability to know the quality of your own opinion, especially when you have a podcast or you're writing up picks, you are obligated to give an opinion, but all opinions are not created equal. And I even said on the show, I think I described the fifth race that kicked off the pick five as extremely tricky. And I technically gave my two selections out, but this was a race where from the beginning, I did not like my picks and was extremely happy when JK threw out a number of horses at longer prices to include. So I did not even press my quote unquote picks in the first leg of the pick five. I just spread and got lucky and and happened to catch something. And then I made my way through the second leg of the pick five, which then got me into the race that's the first one we're going to talk about. I was a little more uh, tiered. The first leg, I basically, it, it might as well have been, been a caveman. I basically just played every horse the same, and the hope was to just catch something. That was going to be a decent price. The second leg I played much more normally. And that got me to the third leg where I was head to head with JK because he his whole opinion was let's beat Big Mountain, which as you might have heard me say on the show, I was a little surprised about just because I didn't think the horse was going to be bad at all. And I, I don't know how much equity there is in trying to predicate your opinion in a race on trying to beat a long shot. I didn't single Big Mountain, but this was a horse I wanted to use and it was just an interesting situation, as I also pointed out on the Naira show, where here we had a horse that was predicted by Timeform US as a lone speed horse or as a horse that was going to be by itself a couple of lengths clear on the front end. It didn't have the race coded to favor speed or anything, but usually those horses end up in their consensus top three. And this was one where the horse wasn't in the top three at all. And for me, I just thought that meant, hey, maybe the market's going to ignore this one. Maybe this is one where we can get a decent price. We've talked about this so much, the importance of 
lone speed. It's a cliche, I suppose, in racing. But the way that I would put it is when you're looking at a race, one of the things that can trump speed figures is pace in the right scenario. It can, you don't even need to worry sometimes about the theoretically not fast enough horse, which big mountain was not theoretically fast enough on paper. But for me, just with that ability to be projected on the lead. And I didn't think this was going to be the, the, it was ugly enough overall that I didn't think the whole world would come to this horse. And therefore was a horse I was willing to, to lean on a little bit in this leg and I did, uh, I did go ahead and throw in some logical backups in Playwright and Tiergen as well, uh, horses that I think J.K. mentioned both of. Um, that's another interesting thing to talk about maybe at some point in the show today, Spencer, is playing with somebody or mm-hmm. at least having somebody who's, you. if you played, in this case, we played separately, but how it how you use it when you go over the handicapping process with somebody no for sure and with big mountain too i just one question i wanted to ask were you worried at all about the, being the sloppy effort where uh he got the 81 last time out with the bug boy as well definitely i mentioned those both things as concerns on the show and it's another reason why i thought maybe this horse isn't going to be that bet because you can hear Muggsy rattling uh, in the background, Muggsy, the handicapping Labrador. She was very interested in this late pick five sequence, but sometimes, I mean, that's a real thing. And anybody who's handicapping seriously should question a mud number should at least notice when a horse is picking up weight, both things that big mountain were, but there are also things that I think the public can overreact to mm-hmm. in some instances. Again, with a horse like Big Mountain, it all comes down to price. And you could probably hear me hemming and hawing while talking to JK. Because he was, when he's saying, oh, I want to beat this horse, I'm thinking, well, gee, maybe there's a world in which he's right and Big Mountain's going to be four to one. And at four to one, I'm fading as well. But ahead of the pick five sequence, I was hopeful enough that this horse listed at six to one in the morning line was going to drift up from there because of the factor that you pointed out because of the theoretical, not fast enough. So again, this was one I was just more than happy to press a little bit in the pick five sequence, though I wasn't going to be a hero. I wanted to have the backups, not having the benefit of knowing exactly what price the horse would go off. And because of all the attendant questions, I think it's a mistake to me in a bet like the pick five to try to be a hero and single when you have logical alternatives like we had here and a overall bet structure that didn't make it very expensive to include said backups. I think when you look at the horse too, five wins and 14 starts, but you look at the distance, two wins and three starts in a second. So definitely starting to become that distance specialist type. Dylan Davis, very dangerous on the front end. Anybody who's talked with me on the bet squad, Dylan Davis, me and him, not too much not too many friend friendly banters back and forth there, <laughs> but uh, you don't mean personally, do you? Have you no, had no, run-ins no. like no, no, Saratoga no. walking back in the jockey <laughs> lane, and you're going up there wagging a finger at poor Dylan Davis? I hope not. Whenever Dylan Davis wins a race, I have all the guys come over and say, "Chili Dilly got you that time," and I'm like, "I guess so." I just the hard thing is when you come off of Belmont and Saratoga, realizing that a lot of the top jockeys they leave, and that leaves guys like Manny Franco, Dylan Davis, Junior Alvarado. And now they're the top three jockeys there. Another thing that was very interesting was if you thought that this horse was rounding into form, Ralph D'Alessandro coming from Finger Lakes, 
maybe the bounce is a possibility. Really big race off of a three buyer not that long ago over at Finger Lakes in the state bread race. Now he comes over, same state bread race, runs second by a neck in the slop at 18 to 1. Now when you come into this race, usually horses that are alone in the lead, that's where you get those big price aberrations. They're alone in the lead or pace meltdown, big 45 to 1 shot comes up the rail and, and beats you. Pace is such a bigger deal because if this horse had a 91 buyer instead of an 81, he would be 7 to 2, 2 to 1. Those are all those are good points. You you raise a lot of things to 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 pause on there. To the point of the bounce, I just didn't see it. Young horse, four years old, carefully handled, had put races back to back before. This horse had a, a three win streak mm-hmm. uh, not too long ago. I just didn't. It just wasn't feeling bouncy to me. It felt like maybe. I mean, maybe the horse just isn't going to be good enough, but. I felt like the horse took advantage of a favorable situation last time, might get a favorable situation this time. And we've talked about this before. A lot of times when horses have these obvious knocks, when you're going to go through, you could see somebody quickly saying, eh, it was 18 to 1 last time. Uh, the horses, most of the form is finger lakes. You could see jockeys like not respecting this horse's chances to be on the lead and therefore letting the horse get a favorable situation once again this time. So... I, for for all those reasons, I, I was uh, happy to stick with this one. I want to bring up one other thing for everybody who says, oh, this horse at 18 to 1 only could run and get second. These are the type of horses you have to circle and realize that the public is not going to bet these types of horses and then expecting them to come out and bet them next time. It usually doesn't happen. These horses will end up maybe odds cut in half at 9 to 1 or 8 to 1, but that's usually still a proper value play. If the horse is down to 7 to 2, now you have more to think about but that could almost also be a positive or is the public overreacting or I, are they? That's an interesting point. I do not like it at all to see a horse like this coming back. I mean, it's amazing. Obviously it, it wouldn't have changed what would have happened mm-hmm. on the racetrack, but if this horse had been a sneakily bet four to one, seven to two, like you're talking, I would have just been happy to say, okay, I know there's no value there. If I, and this is a funny one too, where in my own private horse playing, a horse I probably just would have let beat me. When I talk about a horse like this on the show, especially if I'm essentially going head-to-head with JK, of course, my all-time record is about 12 and 145 in JK in in these head-to-heads, but, you know, I'm still prideful. I'm still a horse player. I'm still going to include a horse I give out at least as a backup, unless it's something completely crazy. (laughs) But for me, I really, I do think there's signal in looking at what price they were last time. And you can't be fanatical about it. I'm sure there are horses who are 40 to one. There was one just last week, I think where there was a horse that was 40 to one and, and then was coming back in a spot where it was going to be six to one. And I was happy to back the horse because of the specific circumstances in that race. And it all obviously should at the end of the day, come down to the specific circumstances in today's race and what they're facing. But as a general rule, I really don't like to see 18 to one last time, three to one this time. It's, it's something that I, my knee jerk is to go against the grain in that situation. But in this case, I felt like the six, six to one or North of six to one was going to be worth a shot. The way I took a look at this one. Taking the contrarian view is always the right way to play the horses. The last thing I want to bring up before we get to the race replay, was just how for me, the playwright, the number seven being the favorite, when you look at this horse, seven years old, 23 starts, 
four wins in eight seconds. So this horse has got a little bit of second IS in him. And once they're seven with 23 starts and they're running a 78 and a 77 back-to-back, there's not much improvement, even third off the layoff, I would guess. That does feel what we call exposed. And all that's a term that's much more familiar in English racing than American racing. But I think it's an important concept, which is an exposed horse, you know exactly how good they are. And an unexposed horse, and you'll hear that a lot about three-year-olds, a three-year-old maybe making a, a race off the good race off the bench and then coming back second off layoff unexposed. You have no idea how good they are. It's very easy to, to pump up their, their potential in your mind in reality. And uh, sometimes to, to a fault where those kind of horses end up being very hyped, but not always. You can sometimes find real opportunities with unexposed horses. And you can sometimes find horses that exposed horses that they might be great to round out your exotics, but you figure they're not going to step up from there and there's no upside in your play of expecting them to do so. I think the last lesson really for the newbie player is really focus on these beginning months of the year. The four, five, six, and seven-year-olds are all going to be facing each other. Being four-year-old and being a seven-year-old, completely different dimensions. The seven-year-old will not be improving as much as the four-year-old will. So if it's only a five or six-point difference, make sure you're paying attention to that going forward i think that's right in this day and age where you see so many horses retire at three or even two it's hard to remember that horses aren't really fully mature until they turn five and you can still you're going to want to slow down the month by month improvement you're going to expect in a four-year-old from a three-year-old in other words they're going to three-year-olds should be improving theoretically anyway a couple of points a month in terms of their speed figure. By the time they get to four, maybe it's a maybe it's a point or two, but it's a good point. The seven-year-old, yeah, they may have other reasons to improve, and you can't discount that, but a barn change, something like that. But it, the physicality and mother nature and growing up isn't going to be on their side as much as it is with the younger horses. So I, I do think that's a good point. Let us see how Pete's pick five kept going in this race and they're off slight stumble at the start for number one high command who is now moving up from the rail on the outside it's big mountain who grabs the early lead as high command and now comes on through to take second Whistling Birds is next in third, and BB Banker is fourth two and a half lengths to big thicket who runs in fifth beach access is sixth then it's 10 29 running in seventh Tiergan to his outside in eighth playwright is ninth and the uh, trailer is centrist. In 10th, the opening quarter, 23 and 1. Big Mountain by a half length. High command down at the rail runs in second. It's a break of about a length to uh, Whistling Birds, who's running in third. Beach Access is next in fourth. BB Banker on the outside in fifth. Big Thicket at the rail runs in sixth. Then it's 10 29 and Tiergan, followed by Playwright and Centrist. Opening half mile, 46 and two-fifth seconds, and Big Mountain is still there, and the lead is a length and a half. High command, Whistling Birds right together, second and third, with BB Banker next in fourth. Then it's Beach Access, Tiergan on the outside, followed by 10-29, and Big Thicket, and they are all chasing Big Mountain, who has built a four-length lead at the top of the stretch. Big Mountain ran three-quarters in 111 and one. He's now in front by five. 
High Command is in second. Whistling Birds is on the outside in third. Then Beach Access and the Playwright, who's gaining some ground late. But in the meantime, Big Mountain has a seven-length lead. Playwright moves to second. Big Mountain, a front-running winner. Playwright was clearly second, and it's a three-way photo for third among High Command, BB Banker, and 1029. And Big Mountain gets it done for Pete. 1860 was the price, running an 89 buyer. Nice pick, Pete. Wow. You know, it, it's, uh, it, it, it's always much easier when it all works out. And one thing I should point out, it had occurred to me before the race, I probably should have mentioned it in the pre-race prattle we did, that this track was being, as so many at Aqueduct have been of late, kind to speed and kind of speed that's maybe a little bit on the outside, like this one was going to presumably be from the 10. And when a horse like this, yeah, we talked about the upside, we talked about the pace advantage, but to win by that much, and just looking back at some of the races earlier on the card, I think you really have to consider the idea of a, of a bias that was helpful to horses on or near the front end at this Aqueduct card at this point. Now with a horse like that, sure, with it being a speed-favoring track, runs an 89, maybe it's more like an 85 with a speed-favoring track, Playwright runs second, just improves the buyer another point from a 78 to a 79. Just like we said, seven-year-olds, only one point compared to the four-year-old improving seven or eight. It's interesting. I mean, I'm tempted to give a lot more credit to the bias than anything else, but it was a good point you made about looking at the upside of the younger ones in this level than horses like Playwright. I mean, if these two come back and meet on a neutral track, I I think I'm going to be in playwright's corner next time. But we have seen this as a bit of a prevailing pot bias at Aqueduct this meet. So it, it's hard to say. It'll depend on the situation. But Big Mountain's a horse that when you look at him next time, we're probably going to look back and say what we say sometimes. Last time was the time. This was probably the time you wanted to have the horse at 8-1 to one, as opposed to next time when there's going to be that figure that's really going to fit at the level, presumably. It all depends on the specifics. Look, I'm not saying I wouldn't bet this horse if he came back in another situation where I thought he could dominate on the front end. But now after this score, I think other riders, the riders, the favorites next time, are going to be a lot less willing to let this guy waltz when it comes to the front end. I think another horse I just want to bring up was uh, Tiergen real quick. Small improvement, first-time four-year-old. Usually those type of horses you'll see take jump forwards, like we just saw with Big Mountain. This horse, to me, was a proven loser, though, at the class level. Had been running in the optional 75s. The last race was the, was a regular state-bred race like this one today. Ran third ran third by four and a half. Do you put anything into the proven loser of horses that lose six or seven races at a certain class level? I don't really. I think that... Over time, I feel like they those horses run to what their numbers are, and you can just you're not going to expect improvement, obviously, but and it's probably going to be tricky back at the same level. But against the right group of horses, when Tiergen's numbers say that he fits, I have no problem betting him. I think it's I think that's I think the crowd, if anything, overrates that that angle. They, those horses can be tough to take, and they could certainly be tough to single. But I think it's an overrated angle, and you're better off cleaving as close to the numbers as possible in types like that. Tiergen finished off the board, off, and he was off of a layoff, so maybe they're going to try and get him better second time out. What do you say we jump into the nightcap at Aqueduct, Pete? Well, we have to pause on the race. I I, I hate to sound too smart on this show, and we <laughs> so we need to talk about race eight, <laughs> where I absolutely blew up the pick five that I've been talking about because I was stone 
cold singled to my boy Tate. And it made me think somebody actually sent me a snotty remark on Twitter, but it, but he was, he was kind of right. It did make me think about um, Garrett Skiba. We had a fun chat with Garrett Skiba an hour long. I think anybody who listens to Redboard Rewind who hasn't checked out that Skiba interview should do themselves a favor and go back and check it out because uh, Garrett just had so many things. And he was talking about just listening to people such as JK and myself supposedly in the know. And I was talking about, you know, when we talk about spread races versus single races and Garrett made the, the observation and it's never been truer than here that his inclination is going to be to single in the races where the likes of JK and I say to spread and to spread in the ones where we say to single, this is one where he and I were both JK and I were both all over my boy Tate and a smart spread probably gets you to Arthur's hope who I know, um, Nick Tamaro liked another horse that was able to win wire to wire. This is an absolute merry-go-round of a race. You can see that when you look and they're the horses that are one, two, three at the pace call are one, two, three at the end. And that's with the big favorites being towards the back of the pack. That's the kind of thing that can really help let you know that the racetrack is maybe tilting in the favor of one type or another. And that's a, that's just a great exercise for, you know, I'm a big believer in the racing flow figures you can get over at racingflow.com. Jake Jacobs would be a good Redboard Rewind guest at some point. Actually. Absolutely. He's a good guy. Um, but you can do it. You can get some intel yourself. There's going to be more signal, obviously, when you're really dialing down into the numbers. But you can tell a lot watching racing just to see if the races are holding together or if the races are not holding together. And if you can see a trend with that one. I used to note it in turf races where, you know, that for various reasons, the data that you get in terms of speed figures and just the times themselves can be off. I find it helpful to note who's as they turn for home. The horses who are one, two, three, do they finish one, two, four or two, three, four, or do they finish nine, 10, 11? And when they finish nine, 10, 11, looking at those horses that made moves into that turn and then maybe flattened out, that's a really good way to find bet backs just by doing nothing. But honestly, you can do it watching the races. You can also just do it looking at the charts. Absolutely. Um, and when I look back at the charts for, for race number eight, um, yeah, you, you see a race that just completely held together. But anyway, my boy Tate, the single that blew everything up. So I was, despite having a couple of clever opinions to this point, I was back to the drawing board as we approached the nightcap at the Big A. I did want to add one last thing there. Also, a lot of times back on the inner dirt at Aqueduct, if I saw a favorite 5-2, to 3-1 to one, that was a closer, I absolutely circled the race and was like, I have to find a way to play this race because there's so much front. Even if there's three or four speeds, a lot of the times back in the day, the speed of the speed would just somehow still end up going, you know, one, two with the favor. And those exotics paid, even if the dollar for an exacto was 25 bucks, you have the favor underneath. What's wrong with that? <laughs> Fair enough. I don't think that's a bad way of looking at the world, uh, looking at the world at all, trying to come up with clever ways to express your opinions and catch something, giving yourselves another great thing that Garrett said he was likening it to poker talking about trying to find ways to give yourself outs as a better give yourself ways to win and i contrast that with what we talked about before in trying to be a hero you know you don't uh you don't get extra points for for losing and and being like extra bold about it you get 
paid by coming up with clever ways of expressing your opinion and finding ways to get paid when you're almost right. A hundred percent. Going into race night at Aqueduct, it was a state-bred Philly maiden 25,000. Six furlongs on the dirt. I had two quick questions about the horse I know you liked from the other podcast, Gypsy Sorceress. What are you first thoughts on when you see an out-of-circuit trainer like Maselli, who only has six starters, two wins, a second and a third? He's obviously firing well, four for six in the money. What do you kind of do with these types? Well, it depends. I'm sorry to give that answer that that's appropriate in so many things in both poker and horse racing, but to me, it's all about have they proven themselves on the circuit. And when you look at the Maselli's becomes a positive just because the numbers, not just in that short sample you mentioned, but if you, you look back at his recent run, I mean, this is a sneaky good barn that I want on my side. And a lot of times at a level like maiden claimers, where you've got a lot of exposed maiden claimers, I want these outsiders. Like I, mm-hmm. I love it. It's not that there's some big drop from the Tampa open maiden claimer to this. In fact, if you looked at buyer pars, the buyer par for this might in aggregate even be higher. So it's not exactly like it's a drop, Mm -hmm. but there's something I like about being a stranger in a group like this. And I'm proud of this one just because it was one where JK was super confident about love me tomorrow. And I actually said, I'm tempted to go back and play the, the, the clip um, of saying, if I were you, I'd put as much gypsy sorceress as you can afford mm-hmm. in, in your picks. And that's, it's, this was such an unusual nightcap because usually in these nightcaps, the line is, I would recommend using as many horses as your budget can afford. And this was the rare case where, I mean, to me, there was only two things that could happen in the race, which was JK was going to be right or I was going to be right. And I guess, you know, if you said you can have backups for free or something, I suppose, you know, you, you, it doesn't uh, take all that much to come up with more diamonds and, and, and throw in the nine. But JK and I both actively were against more diamonds. Um, and th- this was one for me, it really just came down to designing the race and when you see the horses with speed and one is in the far outside, like love me tomorrow and one's on the inside, I just feel like the, the natural mechanics of the race make those paces a little bit faster and a little bit easier to come off the pace. Even when you see a day where it's speed has been so good, but the real thing that made me question love me tomorrow, well, two things. I questioned Love Me Tomorrow even at the morning line price just because of the fact that on pace figures, again, using the Timeform US pace projector, which is a a tool that I really do like. I have a friend who has a proprietary pace projector that I will look at as well, but the Timeform one does a a very good job for commercially available product. And the fact that the 10 wasn't projected to be clear. Yeah. And then they're betting the horse to one to two, like as if there's no other speed in the race. I, I I was against... We talked before about going over races with a partner, somebody like JK, whose opinion I respect so much. I'm not going to get off my opinion at all. I'm not even going to get off pressing Gypsy Sorceress. He was, he, in my in my picks, I was singled to Gypsy Sorceress with single aid to Gypsy Sorceress with, with a lone B of lovely Love Me Tomorrow. But then with nothing going into this race, I mean, the tote board really made the decision with... Uh, Gypsy Sorceress being over four to one, nine to two, and Love Me Tomorrow being odds on. The race was very, ended up being very simple for me. 
a little bit out of deference to going over the races with him. I did cover a 10-2 to get my stake back, but it was just Gypsy Sorceress to win for me to try to, it wasn't like a big move or anything. This was just, I knew the horse was value in my gut and it was just a chance to get the money back for the pick five and get enough money to maybe eat a pizza. I think that'd be a, a good little <laughs> segue pizza. If you lose, that's always the right thing to do for me. It was just, when I've studied James Quinn, he always says, if it's a maiden claiming race, take all the claimers out, take all the first-time starters, take only the droppers from maiden special weight. I saw it was Wesley Ward. Three-year-old, like J.K. said, kind of scary. The thing that I liked originally was the improving buyers. The switch to turf was a little wonky to me, but I thought maybe this horse was coming into something. I didn't like the training on the at Turfway. I thought that was a little strange that they couldn't at least get him get her up here for at least one work over the track to kind of see how she would be doing. So I told myself, based off of the old Mark Kramer book, I can't think of the name off the top of my head. I'll have to tweet it out to you guys on Twitter. But what he did was... Probably Handicapper's Condition Book. Is that what that one's called? That he goes through I, all the class stuff? That was Quinn. Mark Kramer, though, oh, it, was, oh, it was something where he, um, he talks about betting each race, but not calling it a claimer. He would call it a different... It would be like the single favorite race. I'm a huge fan of all of Kramer's work. The ones that I remember, uh, kinky handicapping. Yep. I think he might even have a book called like value line handicapping. I got to look. That's what it is. They're all, That's exactly what okay, it is. It's over there. It's, mm-hmm. we, we can see it in the corner. <laughs> <laughs> so a huge fan of uh, Mark Kramer as a human being and as a writer. And, and I'll say the same for Jim, Jim Quinn as well. What he does is he kind of explains like in a race where it's called, he calls it the stranger. It would be the horse that, you know, Everyone, everyone else has raced at the level or at the class or at the surface, and it's like first-time turf. Well, why can't this horse? If the horse is 40-1, to 1, all you have to do is be right one time. For me, obviously, if I was doing a value, love me tomorrow, all I could do is bet, him at, bet her at even money or higher. Obviously, it didn't happen, so I ended up passing the race. So in that kind of way, even though I was so sure, just like Houston Texans were going to beat the Kansas City Chiefs <laughs> yesterday after they go up 24 nothing. Thanks a lot, Bill O'Brien. <laughs> Um, People don't know this, maybe, uh, Spencer, that you're a, le- a legitimate Houston Texan fan. Probably, uh, I'm not going to put you up there with, with Jake Ballas' a, a level of Houston Texan fandom, uh, Prince of Druthers, but y- you are a legitimate Texan fan. This is not a bitter gambler. This this hurt you where you live, this result. Same with Hook'em Horns since <laughs> since I've been born. Die hard. Well, so, you and J.K. can bond over absolutely. that. Absolutely. <laughs> so I just, Gypsy Sorceress, the other thing that was interesting to me was I've always wondered, like, when horses ship in, is there certain levels that shippers end up doing better at? I thought the bottom level for the state bread might be the right one to do it. That's interesting. One, I love that theory. Once again, Dylan Davis on. I did not play. Also, something that would be interesting. You've got to get over this, Dylan I, Davis. I have thing. to. Dylan Davis to. is a good rider. <laughs> what is your problem? So, when you see it, also, the jockey-trainer combo, 21 starts, 29%, almost a $4 ROI. It really, you need to just, for me, I need to get over my Dylan Davis hatred, which isn't a true hatred. And uh, He's probably I, got friends listening to this show now. Does, you're, you're, and on. now we're going to lose sponsorship. I'm you're so the sorry. Guy, uh, <laughs> an ambulance follows the guy to work, and you're, 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 you're talking about having hatred. This is oh, silly. Oh, no. So uh, <laughs> I ended up with J.K. on Love Me Tomorrow. And let's get into the race call and see who was correct. And they're off. Slow beginning for number five, uh, Barker Lane. He's, she's at the back of the pack with Derby Dahl. 
From the inside, it is more diamonds. Gypsy Sorceress is right there, and Menza Menza on the outside. Three of them across the track for the lead. Then it's Rewarded, who's racing in fourth. Big bounties in between horses, and in fifth. And on the outside now, Love Me Tomorrow gains ground from sixth. It's seven lengths. Back to Maquadon in seventh, followed by Derby Doll in eighth. Then maybe a Rainbow in ninth, and a Barker Lane is the trailer. The quarter went in 22 and two-fifth seconds. On the inside, it's more diamonds. Men's amends is right alongside. The two of them are right together with big long shot rewarded just off them in third. Gypsy Sorceress is in behind horses in fourth. Then comes the odds-on favorite, Love Me Tomorrow, who's in fifth as the field comes down for the eighth pole. The half was running 47 seconds. It is more diamonds on the inside. Men's amends in between horses. Gypsy Sorceress on the outside. Three of them across the track. And Gypsy Sorceress has now taken over. It's Gypsy Sorceress in front. Then Men's amends. Then more diamonds. And Love Me Tomorrow. Gypsy Sorceress wins the finale. Turned out to be close for second. Between late closing Love Me Tomorrow and Men's amends. Gypsy Sorceress. Two for two for Pete so far. Gets it done. 11.40 for the win. Only a 44 buyer, but it is a lower level maiden claiming race. Nice job again, Pete. Well, I feel bad picking races where I actually get to look smart for a minute. It feels a little obnoxious. But keep in mind that uh, despite coming up with a couple of nice price winners, I, I, you know, made minimal money out of the opinion for how badly I botched the betting in the pick five. And then we'll really get to see how smart I am when we get out to uh, Santa Anita. So I, I don't want to... I almost feel bad for having made the choice of being right twice. But I guess on the upside, these were two opinions where I was head-to-head -head with J.K. So for once, I get to take a little victory lap uh, over him anyway. Well, it is 2020, and it's the start of a new decade. So now we're starting over again, right? So now you're 2-0. and <laughs> J.K. is 0-2. He is now flying on a plane back from Vegas to find me in the Brooklyn bunker. I'm sorry, J.K. <laughs> he's not flying back yet. I think he's out there. I, I don't know if he's slept. I think... We talked about the NFL games over the weekend. He had good opinions. I don't know what he did betting-wise, but my best guess knowing him is he's already cashed okay and is sitting on a ticket for his LSU Tiger opinion tonight. I don't know. Maybe it's just another reason for folks to root for Clemson with the points. <laughs> for me, I thought it was interesting watching the race back just now. The 10 was supposed to be on the lead, and nothing happened. It was very weird, and we even watched the head-on again to see. I don't know. I mean, it, it, you got two choices. There's not much horse left there and wasn't fast enough to make the lead, or it was a blindingly bizarre tactical decision given the way that the track had been playing. It's one of the two. I would not be looking to bet Love Me Tomorrow in the next start, however, almost in any case. I know a lot of people will probably be yelling, you know, at – Mr. Vargas, who was the jockey, but obviously to me, like you said, the horse may just not have anything. It's at a bottom level for a reason. Right. Don't just go right off the rip and try to start blaming jockeys. I know we just talked about me with Dylan. Uh, You've learned your lesson already. I've learned this my lesson good. already. This is a good podcast for me. <laughs> sure, jockeys make wrong mistakes, but if you're going to take every loser and not just chop it up to, oh, my handicapping might have just been crappy that day, or it might be, you know, I missed a pick five for one reason or another. It's not always someone else's fault. You really have to look back down to yourself to say, what could I have done differently in that sequence to make a, to make some money? I'll tell you what, even if it is somebody else's fault, you're still wise to go back and look and say, 
hey, is there a way I could have anticipated that they were going to strangle the lone speed or that they were going to duel or that there was, you know, very often when you look back at your betting, you're going to just say, okay, that that was somebody else's mistake. And, and that's okay. And you, you want to be honest about that. You don't want to take everything on yourself, but you should definitely err on the side of making it about your mistake. Even, you know, if there was one or trying to find what that mistake might be, because that's how you're going to get better is looking in the mirror, not pointing fingers. And obviously, you know, from horse racing, Twitter, anybody listening to this, uh, the, the finger pointing is the typical, the, the typical defer mode. And a lot of those people aren't, they're not necessarily wrong, but I don't know how helpful it is at the end of the day. I think it's much better to, to focus on what you might be able to do differently. And then once in a while, you might say, you know what? I did everything right. And it didn't work out for that reason. And then just accept that. Cause that's part of the game too. For new players, something I used to do, we talk about playing in book all the time for me. What I used to do is I would go in, I'd have my $3 Aqueduct PPs. Someone would leave a racing form. They would be done for the day. They would still have all the later races, Santanita, stuff like that. I would go right in. I'd just be like, is anybody using this? No. Can I take it? Sure. I'd bring it home with me. And then what I would do is I would make sure I had all the scratches the next day and I'd just go through and I'd practice. The more races you handicap, the more you can get done and then it really will – it's the same thing with playing poker. The guys online who played 50,000 hands in you know a year are way ahead of the live players who only got so much, so many hands, 30 hands an hour. The more races you handicap, the more you're going to lose, the more you're going to learn. I Every think, time you lose, right. you need to learn. Very few people have the discipline to do what you did. Mike Maloney describes doing that during his educational phase of his career in uh, in college. But if you can do if you can do that – that's great. And if you need to maybe bet a little to have some action and have the races be going on, and if you're somebody who part of your skill set is trying to notice the little things happening in real time, I would say just try to bet as many races live as you can or handicap as many, not necessarily bet. And when you bet, just keep the betting at a level where you're just that's just part of your education and, and part of what you're doing. But I love the idea of trying to play on paper. I was never disciplined enough to do that myself. But I, I think it's a great thing to pursue if you can make it happen. No matter anything you do in life, I know this is getting kind of cheesy, but like if I buy Madden for $60 for the Xbox, I still have to play Madden. I can't just watch the pros play on YouTube. I have to play. I have to learn a certain team, my scheme, all that kind of stuff. The, the thing that hurts racing so much is that it is such a steep learning curve. That's why I have books still from the 80s, which quote unquote may not be proprietary to today, but they have the basics. Yeah, I was just talking to a friend about improving her handicapping and what books she should look at. And it is funny. The first, I I still say, if you want to start, starting with Buyer, looking at the updated Davidowitz, the updated Handicapping 101 by Brad Free. And then, because, you know, hey, I'm uh, I'm very proud of it, I'll throw the Maloney book in there. Once you understand the basics. I don't know if the Maloney book wants to be the first book you ever pick up about how to handicap, though there is some very basic intel in there. Very, very proud of what we accomplished with Betting with an Edge. And DRF Press may be no more, but I've still got a box or two of Betting with an Edge around. If anybody out there listening is looking to get a hold of a copy, message me over at at Looms Boldly, and we'll try to get you sorted out while supplies last. Two other names, just to bring them out. I have, for my Mount Rushmore, two for sure that will go on there for me would be Dick Mitchell and James Quinn as well. Those guys are, the books are older. A lot of the stuff doesn't have pick four, pick five, pick six stuff in it, but it really gets your 
basic of handicapping, not so much betting down. And that means a lot too. Quinn is so good when it comes to the subtleties of different class levels. And I had the pleasure of editing The Complete Handicapper, a book we did at DRF Press a few years ago. And he did make me think about certain categories of races in different ways in that. Some of it's pretty down the rabbit hole. I would suggest probably starting with the books I mentioned. But if you're looking for more, you can do, you can't do better. I mean, Quinn is. He's a, he's a master for, for a reason. And another guy who'd probably come on Redboard Rewind at some point and chat with you. And, you know, we might as well, while we're talking about handicapping books, put in a plug for the new Barry Meadow book. Mm-hmm. Uh, another guy who'd be great on this show. We had a great conversation with him over on, um, over, actually, I think it was, might have even been still, I don't, I don't, I don't remember if that was, this year or the year before? I think it was the new show. It was the new show? Good. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can probably find that in the archive. Uh, the, my interview with Barry Meadow, we, we need to have him back on. And he's just got, that book is fun because it's testing out some of these age-old theories as well. So lots of ways to go. And Dick Mitchell, I didn't really know him until I was doing the research for Six Secrets of Successful Betters and was super impressed. I was actually in the in a library, in a gaming-specific library in Las Vegas, I think maybe connected with the university. And I came across his books for the first time and very ahead of their time. Yes. You know. Uh, one thing too, just for people listening, if you want a specific person to come on the show, please at handy underscore capper, let me know who you want specific races. You guys want covered. If I can figure out how to make it work with the guest on for that week, I will do my best. Other than that, Pete last race, third race of Santinia. Let's see if you have anything else to say. No, let's talk about this. Uh, let's talk about this race. And it was really the story of, Jolie Olympica. And this was one that JK and I completely agreed. Every bone in our body wanted to try to bet against this Brazilian import Mm -hmm. who by Drosselmeyer going a seemingly inadequate distance, patient hands of Richard Mandela. This is a horse who is just sure to improve when there was more ground involved and probably the race under the belt, it was a little tricky to find an alternative. I ended up on Storm the Hill, and JK and I disagreed about this one too. He didn't like Storm the Hill thinking, I think, also too sharp. I got that, but I love the fact that Storm the Hill attended such a hot pace in the matriarch, and I just thought the cutback and the jockey trainer combination. I was just seeing this great trip and I was seeing a Jolie Olympica, like making a great run, but flying late and just not being able to get there. And I thought storm the hill would win. I got the case for Kenton road, but this was one where even at five furlong, five and a half furlongs looking at the way this horse comes home. I just didn't think the horse would last home. I think that was ultimately JK's top pick in here. So I ended up liking Storm the Hill. Just a token a token win bet at the odds for me. Not something I was super excited about, but I, I thought it was an interesting race to pay attention to. I circled for the number three, Jolie Olympica. Grade one winner, obviously, down in South America. Having Mike Smith jump on, like we've said time and time again, Mike Smith on, one of my favorite angles. I ended up on Storm the, Storm the Hill, Flavian Pratt, Philip D'Amato, when I was first cutting my teeth for Scott Shapiro in public handicapping was when D'Amato was coming up, really good turf trainer. I didn't mind the last two grade one losses just because they were 43-1 to and 104-1, to 
kind of told me maybe that the horse just couldn't handle that type of class. This was what I was thinking about before when I talked about a horse coming back. That's yeah. funny. I, I didn't really, I, I had a little synaptical misfire, but yeah, it isn't, it isn't great to see 99 to one, 43 to one, three to two. That probably should have got me off. But again, this was, this was fell for me strictly in the, strictly in the realm of, of action bet. For me, the horse had two grade one wins, which then she fits for class. The bad thing for me was it's really hard to take a graded stake horse when they're 0 for 5 the last year. I know it was against tougher company, but just are they not spying the horse properly? Now they're dropping back down to the grade three. And we do have, you know, Kenton Road, speedball, just goes, 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 goes. The other horse that, like, and there wasn't really much else left in the race. The number five free cover was trying the surface for the first time in a graded stake. Didn't seem at all bred for it one bit. Felt hustled to make the the five horse four horse race into a five horse race, which right? which still angers the customers anyway because it's not an eight horse field or <laughs> Royal Ascot twenty horse field. <laughs> but yeah, it's funny, you know. Really, when you think about it, and you know, we're not supposed to use hindsight in this segment of the show, but it is funny when we were talking about this on the podcast. I think our assumption was Jolie Olympica certainly odds on and maybe long odds on and Storm the Hill more of like a five to two chance at the three to two versus six to five closing odds, even as an action bet, my taking storm the hill, I feel like was, uh, I, I don't feel super, you know, win, lose or draw. I don't feel super proud about three to two on this one. That was, uh, it's, I know they were tougher races, but there's been such big prices against a horse who, well, I thought situationally everything was against Jolie Olympica here for the reasons I said before. I mean, the class is, uh, the class is undeniable coming off of the, the group one or grade one race down in Brazil. We have no idea how good this one was. And part of the fun of this race was just trying to figure out what we have in this four-year-old uh, Drosselmeyer Philly temp trampolino mare, which is cool to see too. Mm-hmm. Um, for Fox Hill Farms and Richard Mandel. I will say the last thing before we get to the race replay, with these types of horses coming away from South America or coming from Europe, I've always said, wait for the price or hope for a price. If the horse is going to be 2-1, to 5-2, to 3-1, and the horse wins, it's a pass, and you just have to learn. And I would circle that trainer and be like, okay, with imports, I can take a smaller price. All If you if you watch the same circuit every day, this is why so many people who you know you see at the OTBs playing seven tracks at once, they will never find the three to one shot next time out. That could be part of a sixty thousand dollar pick five or whatever. It could be the only horse you know when they have all four bombs and they miss this horse because they're not used to studying the tendencies like Mike Samich talked about so much last week. That was an interesting conversation you had with Mike, and I think it's a point worth considering. Let us see who ended up winning this five horse Grade Three strike at Santa Anita. And they're off. Jolie Olympica is flashing plenty of speed, but it's Kenton Road who's up to take the lead. Free cover and Eddie Surprise fourth, about three lengths off the pace, and Storm the Hill in the red moves through inside of that pair. Kenton Road cruises past the half-mile pole with a two-length lead. Jolie Olympica joined by Storm the Hill on the fence, and Eddie Surprise one from the outside and free cover. Compact group rounds the far turn. Kenton Road a length and a half. Jolie Olympica in pursuit. At the rails, Storm the Hill, only two and a half lengths off the leader. 
And any surprises next? Free cover there at the top of the stretch. Kenton Road, Jolie Olympica, Storm the Hill is down at the rail. Jolie Olympica now just gets a nudge from Mike Smith and is trying to get to Kenton Road. Kenton Road's tough, but Jolie Olympica up alongside. And this is a very smooth welcome to the U.S. for Jolie Olympica, the winner of the La Cienega Stakes with plenty of promise. Kenton Road second, Storm the Hill third, and Eddie Surprise fourth. Jolie Olympica gets it done in her U.S. debut, paying for 40 with a high 90 buyer. What do you think going out of this race, Pete? Well, I was just super duper impressed, and this is something we've talked about. It's the angle to cite one of the most famous horses in podcast lore. It reminds me a little bit of the Divisadero angle from long ago. When you see a horse do something you're not expecting them to do or sort of run through a situation, in Divisadero's case, it was a trainer with an O for a lot, first time out stat. And to me, for all the reasons we talked about, this horse had every reason you'd have been thrilled to see this horse be a late closing third and gallop out past the field and get something out of the race. But here was a horse that showed a lot more speed than I thought, just exuded class through the race, did it all on her own, won so easily going the seemingly inadequate five, still looked great after the wire, pricking the ears, looking like she just had a ton left. I know this wasn't the strongest field, and it wasn't the fastest figure ever, but based on the class and just the ease with which she tackled this task that I thought had every reason to be difficult, all things considered, I think we've got a, a potential grade one horse for Richard Mandela out there, and this is one I'm very, very excited about as a fan, and hopefully as a better, we can find a way to try to leverage an opinion on her into some money down the line. I have nothing else to really add. Maybe with the five free cover, seeing as how it was her first time on a turf race, maybe look at the Andrew Lerner barn this for this next coming up week and try and see if there's a spot that maybe the condition book was put in there specifically for a horse of his. Try something else in that spot. Because sometimes when you have a guy who just needs, instead of having a four-horse field to bring it into a five-horse field, they might end up, you know, giving a horse of his an extra spot. Yeah, it's very hard to know with that type of stuff, and I'd be surprised if you stumble upon like the exact situation uh, tit for tat, but that's one where I think when that horse does go back to doing whatever it does next, you can probably, at the very least, not hold this effort against. I think Storm the Hill ran an okay third. Not at the odds, you don't want to see that, but I think that this horse will probably be in the grade, hopefully the grade three, and now they know not to bump her up into those higher graded stake levels. Yeah, it'll all depend on who shows up. I really think Jolie Olympica is of a different class than most in that division out there. And yeah, I wouldn't be at all interested in Storm the Hill against Jolie Olympica. But it's not, sometimes in these California turf races, it's not as much about the grade as it is who shows up. I feel like there can be a really wide variance in class when you're looking at the Southern California turf races, one like Julie Olympica, I, I could ship and I'd be interested in a grade one uh, storm the hill. I'm not going to give up on, but, but clearly, you know, not the same class as Julie Olympica and, and frankly disappointing to not pass Kenton road. Uh, I'm going to look askance next time, but I wouldn't rule out getting back on the bandwagon depending on the specifics. I would need higher odds. Other than that, for That's sure. pretty much it for this race, Pete. Anything from you? No, it was great having you here, Spencer. It's fun to do these shows together once in a while. I like what you said when you called out to the audience for uh, some ideas of either races to cover or guests to have on. But I'm really looking forward to uh, working on 
Redboard Rewind with you this year, and normally I'll just be in my engineer-producer role, but it's fun once in a while to get to come on here and get into the weeds and really talk about these races and hopefully point out a thing or two folks can learn. I'm sure we will have you back on soon enough. Thanks to all of our great fans for listening to this show and my special guest, Pierre Thomas Fornatel. This show has been a production of In The Money Media. In The Money Media's president is Pierre Thomas Fornatel. Our chief creative officer is Jonathan Kinchin, and our In The Money Media business manager is Drew Coatney. I'm Spencer Luganville, and we will see you next time. Mm-hmm.